Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's a few seconds to four o'clock and it's Jan Bartlett with you till six this evening. Today, findings of an inquiry into the human rights situation in Venezuela. I'll be speaking with journalist, author and activist Fred Fuentes. Commentary by activist and writer Joan Coxedge. The monthly gene ethics report with Bob Phelps. Legacies of nuclear testing in past years. Listening to Helen Caldicott. She was featured on Ockham's Razor a little while ago on Radio National. And part one of a talk by Emeritus Professor Richard Falk titled A Future for Palestine, BDS and International Law and Beyond. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when the government attacked those calling for an increase in the dole as opponents of aspiration. Indeed, the Minister for Get a Job, You Lazy Bastards, Michaela Kosh, the workers, whose compassion is legend, said Socialist Party members talking about Newstart, that's the euphemistic title for the dole, talking about Newstart, were not talking about opportunities for getting people into work. So we must not talk about, must not mention the dole, let alone suggest it should be increased to a slightly higher level of poverty. And the socialists, she said, they're such irresponsible people, had opposed every exciting job creation government policy going back to the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in those dark ages, inspired work for the doll policy, which overcomes the little problem of caring employers inadvertently underpaying workers because they don't have to pay them anything. And the big economic guru Josh Pride in Icebergs asserted the government would not sacrifice the chimera that is a sometime in the future never-never surplus to boost the dole to that slightly higher level of poverty. We are quite satisfied with the current level of poverty, Josh confirmed. Uh, Yes, Josh, just what is this uh, surplus you keep trying to achieve? It's money the government collects which we don't spend. And why does the government collect this money? Well, to provide government surpluses, uh, sorry, services, like, say, the dole. Yes, yes, that's so, although I'm sure you know we must not mention that word. When you use that word, you're not talking about opportunities for getting people into work. Yes, yes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but therefore the surplus is money raised for services like, say, that which we can't mention, but not spent on that which we can't mention. That question indicates you have no concept of how the economy works, an ignorance you share with the socialists. In fairness to the socialists, the accusation is false. They are not calling for an increase in that which we can't mention. They they just want a review. Although I suppose even that would be not talking about opportunities for getting people into work. Uh, Yes, what is your policy? We are socialist supremo and would be big supremo, Anthony Albanese. In the interests of the working people we represent, we support the government 100%. 
Although we wonder why the government bothers to work its guts out to get people into work when workers are so bloody ungrateful. Take these lawless workers on a Brisbane luxury apartment site, 267 apartments, being developed by Tim Gurner. Tim Gurner get the union, one of the annual True Blue Aussie rich listers. In other words, a highly respected great contributor to True Blue Aussie society. And what thanks does he get? The workers walked off just because the builder, Icon, Icon the workers, tore down union flags, evil union flags, when everyone knows evil union flags are quite understandably illegal. And dozens of workers charged by the Smash the Construction Union's jackboots authority for raising union flags face $42,000 fines each. Fines were recently increased from 14 grand to 42 grand because, as we know, evil union and lazy avaricious worker lawlessness is out of control. And the workers are also a bit upset about the actions of the company safety officer photographing them, leaving us to ask, what did they have to hide? Despite this blatant disregard for the law, imagine what the world would come to if workers could just fly an evil union flag when they feel like it. Anarchy, despite how gracious, how generous of Michaela and Josh and Tim Gurner get the union and icon the workers to devote their lives to talking about creating opportunities for getting people into work when they are rewarded with such ingratitude and what better incentive to getting into work, what better created opportunity than poverty, starvation, homelessness. An unlivable doll is an... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I said it, sorry. An unlivable, that which we can't mention, is therefore an act of kindness. And while the jackboots con mission must, on behalf of all of us, fine unkind to their caring employer workers, trillions, this new report shows the con mission controlling caring employers has nothing to control, and if there is a slight inadvertent problem like ripping off billions, they can reach a friendly agreement over a few cognacs, because we can guarantee caring employers are meeting their obligations to their workers and not exploiting them beyond the levels the law allows them to exploit workers to carry out their sole desire in life to provide jobs, jobs, jobs for the ingrates, like big end of town jeweller Mike Hell, Hill of Money, whose money has not been going to the workers, estimated anywhere between 10 to 25 million, showing how orderly their books must be. Millions underpaying workers for years, and this so-called celebrity chef has got the recipe wrong and not put enough ingredients into his workers' pockets, although he argues quite reasonably penalty rates in an industry that largely operates outside normal hours are an impediment to profitability. Poor George, that's his name, George Columbaris from paying, but in every case they point out the problem lies with the awards. They're just too difficult to comprehend, unlike a diamond or a simple recipe, but as we keep saying, listener, how come when all these underpayments are caused by inadvertently getting it wrong, they never mean to underpay, how come they never misinterpret the too difficult to comprehend award the other way? How come they never inadvertently overpay workers? Oh dear, we've been overpaying our workers for years. On the law of averages, we'd expect it to be roughly 50-50. Interesting study for mathematicians, a theory disproved. 
We discussed last week this timely attempt by U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, to save the U.S. from U.S. of from these non-white women attempting to take over the place by getting themselves elected to Congress, telling them to go back to the dystopias they came from, which happens to be the U.S. of. And this week, Donald whipped up a Donald crowd to chant his "Send Them Home" mantra, showing how intelligent the Donald crowd is, given they are already home. Then Donald stood back with that haughty pose which he assumes reflects intelligence but in fact screams vacant but then said he did not support the chant he orchestrated so we clearly got the wrong impression. And to prove the great difficulties and responsibilities that go with being commander in chief, especially when your military history is dodging it Donald then announced the US of had been forced to shoot down an evil Iranian drone See, when Evil Iran shot down a good U.S. OB drone in U.S. of the world territory over Evil Iran, it proved just how evil, uh, evil Iran was. And when good U.S. of the world shot down an Evil Iran drone over U.S. OB territory just off the coast of Evil Iran, it also proves just how evil Evil Iran is, thus proving Evil Iran is just evil. Meanwhile, our big supremo scuttled them more last son was a bundle of shaking excitement after Donald invited him to a feed of hot dogs and a chat about supporting US of invasions of evil China and evil Iran, which shouldn't take much persuading because scuttled them has already declared we have an obligation to invade Iran if the US of does. So presumably evil Iran must be posing a major security threat to True Blue Diversion. I say a feed of hot dogs because when the former U.S. of big supremo George W. Bash the workers invited the little bald-headed bloke who used to be our big supremo back here in those dark ages to lunch at the ranch, he fed him hot dogs. And I thought, maybe he doesn't like him after all. After all, who could? And maybe he's trying to knock him off. Did George W. also eat the hot dogs, the mysterious bundles of salt, fat, sugar and God knows what else? Although he was so stupid. Anyway, Scuttle them shook with excitement and told us yet again just what close, 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 warm, warm, warm friends we are and how important is the U.S. OB's role in maintaining peace by sending its train killers all over the world, all over the U.S. of the world. And Socialist Party Supremo Anthony Albanese showed why it's so important to have a left socialist big supremo by wishing Scuttle them well and declaring and iterating his comments about our close relationship with the world's biggest war criminal. Uh, sorry, force for peace, enforcer of peace. And Donald wants a few tips from Scuttle them about how a committed Christian treats refugees because he admires our policy, although in fairness, he's not doing a bad job of it on the Mexican border where Donald's offsider, Mike Dollars and Pence, praised the enforcers for the way they were treating the separation children, all of whom assured him in front of the enforcers they were being treated well. And so the week that was asked scuttled them just how Donald delivered the big exciting invite. Well, he rang and snapped, get here. Yes, it's such a warm and meaningful two-way relationship. And of course, if the U.S. of did invade evil Iran, Trubler was he would be threatened because of the role of Pine Gap. More proof of just how evil evil Iran is. Yet... 
finally, yesterday, as the PNG Big Supremo dropped into Canberra, Scuttle them said, We have no truer friend than Papua New Guinea. Must have been rehearsing for meeting Donald, that meeting of the giant minds. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mr Kevin Healy, and it'll be good morning tomorrow at nine for City Limits. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. While the corporate media focuses on the efforts of the US to promote war with Iran, as with Syria, the focus has slipped from Venezuela, two countries also determined to withstand the pressure to submit. We focus today on just two areas. One, the UN report on human rights in the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, and second, the third round of negotiations between the Venezuelan government and the opposition, which began last week. I'm speaking with activist, author and journalist Fred Fuentes. Fred, can you first identify the author of the report? The report itself comes from the the Human Rights Commission in the United Nations, and it basically was headed up by uh, Michelle Bachelet, uh, who's the former Chilean president and is now the head of the, the UN Human Rights Committee, or the, she's now the UN Human Rights Commissioner. So she was the one that sort of headed up the drafting of the report. And the significance on the day of the day it was released, some people are a bit suspicious of it, saying it happened on the, the 4th of July when it, maybe it shouldn't have been released until the 5th of July. Do you see any conspiracy in that one? Oh, no, no. I, I look... I, 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 my guess is they were just wanting to get the report out as soon as possible, and once once it was ready, it was it was uploaded. I think it wasn't officially presented until the the, the following day, but you know, I, like I said, I, I think it was, it was already ready, so, and there was uh, interest in getting the report out as soon as possible. How have you assessed the report? Oh, look, I, I think there's a number of important points when dealing with the report. Firstly, is that of course there are a number of very serious allegations, and I think. None of them deserve to be just simply dismissed. Serious allegations in regards to use of excessive force, including the death of civilians by certain sections of the security forces, questions of people being uh, imprisoned uh, for political beliefs. I think all of those deserve to be taken very seriously and deserve to be investigated. So I think it's very positive. Firstly, that the Venezuelan government allowed the commission to come in, even though many were reticent that this would simply just be used as a one more instrument in, in the campaign to delegitimise the Venezuelan government. Irrespective of that, the Venezuelan government did open its doors to this commission to come in and, and do, find, do its findings. And subsequent to the, the report, even though the government has criticised a number of the elements in the report, has agreed to set up a, a, an office uh, that will allow for the UN Human Rights Commission to set up an office in Venezuela where they can continue to monitor the situation, continue to work together with the government to deal with some of those. So I think that would be the, the first point that, you know, I don't think any, you know, any of the allegations can just simply be dismissed or ignored and deserve a, a, a more thorough investigation. 
you know, given that in, in many cases there, there is also a lack of substantiating evidence to back up the claims as well. So that's why they also deserve further investigation to ratify exactly how accurate uh, some of these claims are. Now, when they're talking about deaths and imprisonment, is this just in the recent years or does this go back a few years to Chavez? Uh, the report itself largely dedicated itself to just the, the, the more recent years. But, of course, another the part of the problem is, and this is where you then start to see why people see this report with suspicion, is some of the contradictory or biased or just outright sort of incorrect information that is presented in the report. And to give one example, uh, even though the report is largely based on sort of the, what's been happening in the recent years, uh, when it comes to, for instance, the situation of access to food and important problems that are being confronted in Venezuela in terms of food shortages or lack of the, the adequate food supply. The report, just in passing, notes or blames this as a result of the past decade of government policies. Now, of course, if we're talking about the past decade, that then translates back into the, the Chavez era, because Maduro certainly hasn't been in power for 10 years or more, but also ignores the fact that whilst at the, the very same paragraph where it refers to statistics from the UN's Food and Agricultural Organization regarding food shortages and the impact that's having on, on malnourishment uh, amongst children and says that blames for the policies of the government for the last decade. Uh, it you know, ignores the fact that actually, according to the UN Food and Agricultural Organization, Venezuela was leading the way only five, six years ago in terms of tackling malnutrition uh, amongst children in the general population. In fact, in 2015, the very same UN body proclaimed a special mission that year uh, in honour of Hugo Chavez because of the work he had done to tackling uh, malnutrition and turning the situation of, in terms of in regards to food access around in Venezuela. So clearly both can't be right. It can't be that a decade of policies were wrong and while simultaneously Venezuela during that decade was praised by that same institution for, its, for those uh, food policies. That's why you know, many say, yes, there are important things that need to be investigated in the report, it's just very unfortunate that it seems to have been a, a politicised report, which in passing says it's the result of government policies without explaining why or which policies, as while simultaneously also noting the fact that the sanctions have made the situation worse, although it claims that the sanctions cannot be blamed for the situation, only for worsening the situation. And these are the US sanctions that are basically restricting the ability for Venezuela to be able to import a number of important produce, including food and have an impact on its, you know, its ability to access oil markets in order to be, get the revenue it needs to be able to make these imports happen, but makes no recommendations in terms of the, what, what should be done with those sanctions. So it acknowledges the sanctions are, at very minimum, at least partially responsible, even though some would argue they're mainly responsible, but that we can debate that point. But it makes no specific point about what should be done in regards to those sanctions. So this, this, is, where the, this is where, unfortunately, what should have been a very serious report a report that should have paved the way for hopefully trying to deal with these situations becomes politicised and biased and opens the door for people to just simply try to ignore or, or refute the entire report uh, on the basis of, of these kind of problematic elements of it. All right. Well, why is it biased and politically incorrect? I mean, obviously, that, that would be depend on, on who you ask. Some would argue that it's because there was a lot of pressure put on the Bachelet and the Commission to come up with a report that was anti the government, that perhaps its, its mission from the start was always exclusively to uh, give, present the, the Maduro government in a bad image. Although I think, as a side note, it should be pointed out that the report at all times refers to the Nicolas Maduro government and President Nicolas Maduro, and at no point gives 
in any way the legitimacy to the idea that Juan Guaido, the opposition leader himself, proclaimed himself to be president, is in any way the, the president of the country. That small but important detail of the report has been completely ignored in the media, that this commission, when it arrived in the country, totally understood exactly what was happening in the country in terms of who is and who isn't the, the president of the country. So I think part of it is because it was expected that this report would be largely focused on just criticising the government, that, I think, is shown by the fact that even though the Commission met with a number of human rights organisations and victims of opposition violence, including victims of the waves of violent protests that occurred in 24 and in 2017, these uh, accounts, these facts, were just completely left out of the report. Uh, so it wasn't, they, they just were not included, even though that information had clearly been presented uh, in, in forums and in meetings and in interviews that, that had occurred. So I think that all, all of this tends to lead towards that perhaps there was a set objective in terms of what, what was expected to come out of the report. I think a, a second element, which I, I think is also important to point out, is that generally when it comes to bodies such as the UN, they tend to view human rights purely as a question of rights of citizens in, re, in respect to their government. So when you have non-government violence, or such as what we've seen with the opposition, including uh, military coup attempts, uh, which occurred only, only a few days before Michelle Bachelet's commission actually arrived. I think it was for the second or third time uh, in Venezuela with the April 30 coup attempt. Or well, none of these gets included as supposed uh, in, in the very narrow view of human rights presented, you generally talked about uh, by the United Nations and such institutions. So is it the United Nations institutions that set up these terms of references? Well, the terms of references would have been set up by the Human Rights Commission, so not, which is a commission of the United Nations, but it's, it's not one and the same thing as uh, just because... Of, and and this, would, this is a report specifically of a delegation headed by Michelle Bachelet, uh, who's done that, but this shouldn't be mistaken to be either representative of or this has somehow been approved by the United Nations or even by the Human Rights Commission itself. Uh, both the report was presented and Venezuela presented a... Not a counter-report, but a, a 70 observations it had of, of the report, and, and it was left there. Uh, but in terms of actual voting in, in human rights, sorry, in the United Nations bodies, uh, in terms of adopting or, or rejecting the report or any of its conclusions, none, none of that has, has officially occurred. Well, what will occur with a report like this? Well, for, for now, I think the, the main thing that will occur is, is what I mentioned before, which is essentially that uh, the Venezuelan government, although under no legal obligation to, to do anything in regards to the report, as I said, it's presented its observations of the report and it's agreed to work, continue to work uh, with Bachelet, with the Office of Human Rights, to set up, a, to allow them to set up a, uh, an office in, in Caracas, in Venezuela, and to continue to, to monitor, monitor the situation. So, as of now, really, that's, that's the main thing that, that's come out of, of, of all this, putting aside, of course, the, the, the media spectacle that surrounded it all. What have been the comments by Guaido and his mates? For them, they've argued that the report has you know, just justified what they have said all along, that Venezuela is a dictatorship and that there's no human rights, so, which I think they would have said irrespective of whatever the report had found. Of course, as I said before, they forgot to mention a bit about how the report also found that Guaido never referred to Guaido as the president of Venezuela and only limited to referring to him as the president of the National Assembly, which, of course, is the actual position that he holds in the country. So, but they've, they've sort of just simply used this as, as one more uh, instrument in their, camp, in their campaign to delegitimise the, the Maduro government without in any way trying to 
seriously deal with any of the issues that are affecting the country more broadly. Is he coming a bit of a joke, isn't he, Guado? Well, look, I think the, there's, Guado is facing a, a number of problems. The first problem is that it's becoming very clear that internally within the country he's, he's losing steam. Uh, perhaps internationally, it, one might say it's a bit of a stalemate. You know, we've got a certain amount of countries that are supporting him or re- recognising him, a bigger number uh, that are not recognising him, but that sort of really that, that hasn't changed much in the, in, in a sense, since the initial sort of a initial burst of, of diplomatic battle that occurred in January, February, uh, maybe including into March this year. What we're seeing is internally he's, he's losing steam and he faces a, an important deadline because essentially the way that the National Assembly and the opposition have been working is that in January they'll have to re-elect a new president of the National Assembly. Given what has been occurring up until now, that would mean a new National Assembly president would be elected from a different party, so it wouldn't be Guaido. Uh, it would most likely not be from his party, the Voluntad Popular Party, which is one of the more ultra-right parties that many have sort of pointed to as being the one that has really been spearheading this, this sort of push to create a, a, a parallel government, one that many of the more moderate opposition parties didn't particularly support at the, at the start, although have certainly come on board subsequently in a, in a sense of feeling that the opposition needs to be united in, in order to, to make the most out of, out of this push being led by Guaido. But if if January comes around and, and Maduro is still in government and by, you know, certainly everything would seem to indicate that that, that is the case, that, that would be a big problem. And so Guaido is facing a, a big challenge of what, how to continue to advance his project. And that's really now open, left him with, with two positions, or he's really opened two front on this battle. And largely, both of them uh, don't in any way try to involve building uh, popular support within the country because he's realised he's not really been able to do that uh, amongst the civilian and military force to build enough popular force to actually be able to throw the government. So the two options that he's opened is that through the National Assembly, uh, they've talked about reintegrating uh, Venezuela back into a, an inter-American reciprocity treaty, which essentially is a treaty in which the US helped set up and it's largely a treaty that's generally been used to kind of authorise the use of foreign military forces within a country uh, in the name of protecting regional security. So obviously what the pretext here is being that having re-entered into to this treaty, that Venezuela would then propose that the different countries analyse the situation, and of course their aim would be to find that uh, given the uh, danger that the Maduro government represents for the region, this would trigger off or justify military intervention into Venezuela. That's one door that Guaido is opening, but simultaneously at the same time he's been forced to have to accept to participate in the recent round of negotiations that have been occurring between sections of the opposition and and the government in terms of trying to come back to a sort of a normalisation of of the situation uh, in the country. Uh, where we're, and we've seen those those talks happening over the last uh, not the weekend just before the weekend uh, gone uh, in in Barbados. Just before we talk about the um, meetings, could it also be that the US is losing a bit of interest in Venezuela? They've got their eyes set on Iran now. That's certainly possible. It's it's obviously always a bit hard to tell. It, I, I think. More likely than necessarily losing interest in Venezuela, I would say that it would probably be more a case of realising Venezuela wasn't going to be as easy as it was sold to them. And so feeling that perhaps, well, we thought this would be over in a couple of months. It doesn't look like it's going to, you know, it's certainly not over, uh, and it doesn't look like it's going to be over any time soon. So perhaps putting that onto the back burner, at least until some some new situation uh, opens up. Having said that, 
I think while some of the media uh, have been sort of presenting this image of, you know, Trump's just given up or Trump's just ignoring Venezuela or he's forgotten about Venezuela, you know, a bit, a bit of a trope about sort of, you know, Trump and his inability to maintain you know, attention span for longer than, than a couple of hours. Uh, I think it cannot be ignored that all, during all of this time, the U.S. continues to apply more and more sanctions on Venezuela, more and more strangling the economy there. So there's certainly not, a, in, the, in, in no way, is there a sense that the U.S. has simply just ignored Venezuela or, or changed its, its goal of regime change in Venezuela. It just may have perhaps decided that the road that it initially thought was the, the most opportune road is perhaps today not the best one to, to pursue. And, I think they're going for a more longer-term strategy of continuing to strangle the economy and waiting to see what, what happens next. As you said, the third round of negotiations between the Venezuelan government and the opposition are taking place in Barbados. What did the first two achieve? Yeah, well, look, unfortunately there's sort of been a bit of a lack of information as to the exact you know, exact uh, outcomes of these negotiations. Uh, what we do know is at least certainly that the government has announced and, and, and the opposition has uh, certainly not, not rejected, and, and some sections of the opposition have, have accepted this as a fact, is that coming out of those talks, obviously there's agreement for further talks, and that in between uh, sort of basically permanent working groups involving sections of the government and the opposition uh, are being established to discuss different topics. Now, it, the exact scope of those working groups, the exact nature of it, what they will discuss is not totally clear. Certainly... We know that there's the question of elections and the National Electoral Commission or National Electoral Court will be of, of intense interest for both sides in terms of the fact that there are, uh, there are National Assembly elections due for next year and that the Maduro government has already mentioned the idea of bringing them forward to this year. So that, that will obviously be, from the government's viewpoint, be pushing that one. And, of course, from the opposition's viewpoint, they'll be pushing the question of presidential elections and scheduling of, of presidential elections. They're claiming uh, that they've already got agreement uh, or, for some bringing forward of those presidential elections or those sections of the government have said that there's, there's no, no such agreement uh, has been reached. Uh, I think if, before any timetable for elections is, is established, there will also be the question of the National Electoral Court, uh, which the opposition claims to, um, says that is heavily biased towards the government. And so there would perhaps be, need to be some kind of negotiation of um, a recomposition of that National Electoral Court together with some discussion about uh, international observers uh, in order to ensure that whatever election result happens, uh, both sides uh, uh, agree to that. Uh, but I, I imagine they're not the only points out that will be, be discussed. I, I imagine there'll be the question of, uh, of the, the political prisoners, or at least certainly what the opposition claims to be the political prisoners. The, op the government would claim that many of these that are currently claim to be political prisoners are not people who are imprisoned for their political ideas, but rather for their involvement in violent actions. So I, I would have no doubt that working through that list and carrying out an investigation, hopefully, as I mentioned before, together with the Human Rights Office that's been set up by the UN Human Rights Commission, can help to, to resolve, clarify that situation as well. But in the meantime, the people of Venezuela have to cope with the impact of the sanctions and, in some cases, an inept government. Well, that's right. See, this, this is, I think, the biggest problem is that you know, when, when we talk about the Human Rights Report, we talk about the negotiations. Left out in, in both of those situations really is the, the voice of ordinary people and, and what they, you know, and their active participation uh, in this is instead of sort of seeing that uh, all of this is, is occurring sort of uh, 
you know, if you, if you like, you know, amongst the political class, you know, whether that be from the government or the opposition side, whether that might involve negotiators from outside or, or, or not. But, you know, what's not present at these discussion tables uh, or whose voices are not particularly being heard are just the, the, the ordinary people who are involved in day-to-day, -day, whether it be their trade unions, whether it be in community organising, uh, whether that be in the, in, the, in the countryside where they continue to try to deal with turning around the situation in terms of growing food to be able to meet, meet the basic needs. A lot of, that, lot of those voices are, are being left aside and are really important voices that need to be heard if there is to be a, is to be a solution. But unfortunately it seems that there seems to be little interest or perhaps there's more to be benefited from the current situation of stalemate than there is from trying to actually come, come up with some real concrete solutions not just that resolve the situation, which of course is the, the first and most vital bit, but ensuring that the situation is resolved in a way that is where it's not the poorest who are made to pay the, the price for resolving the crisis. And one feels that perhaps that, that is, there are certainly sections, uh, both certainly in the opposition, but maybe perhaps in the government as well, that would be happy to come to some kind of compromise, some kind of way out of the crisis, but one that would perhaps see the burden of, of getting out of the crisis further placed on those that are already suffering the most. Finally, Fred, are the people at the grassroots level speaking out and is, are there spaces for them to speak out? From the start, you know, the, the continues to show that there's still a high level of, you know, local, near numbers of local protests that continue to occur throughout the country. So certainly there's no, you know, whilst, whilst um, we don't see and the media doesn't show because they're not really happening, the kind of protest they, they continually showed at the start of the year when, when there was a greater enthusiasm for Juan Guaido and there was larger protests in opposition areas. Well, those protests really have dissipated, as many have felt that they've been betrayed by Guaido, who promised a lot and has yet to deliver much. That doesn't mean that day-to-day -day protests over the many very difficult issues that Venezuelans are facing uh, is not occurring. Um, protests that, you know, as mentioned, and it's something that should be condemned and needs to be further investigated that it have been in some cases repressed by security forces even though they have had, no, have had nothing to do with the opposition. That's not to say that it would have been legitimate for them to be repressed purely for being opposition protests but these are just simply protests by members of the community raising basic demands whether it be in regards to jobs, salaries, food, the many, many difficult issues that, that people are facing. There also continues to be important uh, different gatherings of different sections, uh, in particular within Chavismo, increasingly critical of the direction that the government is going, uh, who are wanting to have their voices heard, who are wanting to put forward alternative proposals, who are coming together to come up with alternative proposals, recognising that this, this just can't be left to the government and the opposition, that there needs to be beyond criticism and protest, there needs to be also concrete proposals and demands that can be put forward to campaign around to show that there is a different way out of, out of the crisis, because in the absence of that, what we may see is that whilst perhaps the opposition may not succeed in getting rid of the government, what it may succeed in doing is being able to create a situation where it still gets the same outcome, which is essentially the feat of the sort of progressive process of change that has been occurring in Venezuela. And what it, what it sees is an ability where it forces the existing government to basically give in on any, any sign of further progressive change and instead try to normalise the situation by carrying out the kind of exact same program that the opposition would, would put into place if it was to gain power. OK, thanks, Fred. No worries, thank you. That indeed is Fred Fuentes, a journalist, author, activist, mainly focusing on Latin America. 
speaking about the situation in Venezuela. And this is 3CR, Community Radio in Melbourne, 8.55am, 3CR Digital. You can be streaming at the moment on your computer, 3cr.org.au, or you could podcast this, work out how to podcast the program and listen to it to your leisure later in the day, in the week, in the weeks to come, 3cr.org.au. All that information is on the homepage. And at the moment it is 4.35 and 33 seconds. It will be worth the effort to get to Darwin from the 2nd to the 4th of August for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. Australia at the Crossroads, time for an independent foreign policy. Held under the ominous shadow of US-China contention and US-Australia military exercises for war on China, discussion and speakers will address the social and economic cost of militarism to Australia, the impact of militarism on the environment and the dangers posed to our peace and security by stationing US troops in Darwin. For more details, head to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's website at ipan.org.au. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. I think most of you will agree that we're living through extraordinarily fraught times where the most powerful man in the world is an unhinged crook who is surrounded by equally unhinged crooked advisers hell-bent on creating mayhem and war. And we're part of the problem with our servile relationship to Washington, regardless of who inhabits the White House, especially by way of Pine Gap and Northwest Cape bases and the imposition of US Marines stationed in Darwin, all of which directly implicate us in America's war agenda. To try and make sense of the present, I came across some words of wisdom from the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, known as the father of democracy. More than 2,000 years ago, Aristotle made the following observation. And so long as they were at war, their power was preserved. But when they had attained empire, they fell. For of the arts of peace, they knew nothing, because they had never engaged in any employment higher than war. His words have particular resonance for us, because although he was describing ancient Rome, he could just as easily be talking about the role of the USA today. Take a look at its history. Since the United States was founded in 1776, it has been at war for 214 out of its 235 years of existence. In other words, there were only 21 years when it wasn't waging war. To put this into perspective... Since 1776, there is a 91% chance that America was involved in some conflict, with not one U.S. leader qualifying as a peacetime president. The U.S. has never gone for a decade without war. The only time it went for five years without fighting a war was during its isolationist period of the Great Depression. So we shouldn't be surprised at what is happening now, which doesn't make it any less of a nightmare. We live in a political jungle, in an out-of-control, brutal capitalist society that is run by and for powerful corporates, turning what people still think of as a democracy into a charade, and where elections have become a sad joke. 
Our votes conceal the fact that our so-called leaders are not there to represent us, but to promote the interest of global corporations, and where political and media elites have been captured by crooked big business money, making our voices increasingly irrelevant. One who has survived the political jungle and kept his integrity intact is Jeremy Corbyn, but whose treatment is a salutary lesson for anyone attaining office who challenges the political establishment. Corbyn was unexpectedly elected as Labour leader, presenting for the first time an ideology that listened to people before being bought off by big money. It marked a victory of sorts, but it only happened because of chance. A handful of MPs nominated him for the leadership contest because they wanted to give the impression that the ballot was fair and open. After his unexpected victory, they expressed deep unhappiness at the result because none of them believed that the tiny and besieged left wing of the parliamentary party stood a dog's chance of winning, especially after the odious Tony Blair and his acolytes had spent all their energies in remaking Labour by eradicating any vestiges of socialism. These destructive elements who blatantly represented the interests of the corporates then had the gall to call themselves New Labour. Corbyn was different. He had nothing to do with the Blairites and consistently took a minority view when it came to voting in the Parliament. The second reason Corbyn won the leadership was because of a change in the party's rule book, where the new internal balloting system gave more value to the votes of ordinary members than the parliamentary wing, and the rank and file wanted Corbyn. So Corbyn won. Since then, the attacks against him have become even more hysterical in an attempt to stop him from ever becoming Prime Minister. Initially, he was accused of being unstatesmanlike, a security threat and a communist spy, all of them ridiculous lies. The attacks got even worse, but they backfired because the party membership skyrocketed, making it the largest in Europe. On a personal level, Jeremy Corbyn is self-effacing and lives modestly, and for the past four decades has stood firmly against the imposition of the wretched turbocharged neoliberal form of capitalism unleashed by Thatcher and Reagan in the early 1980s. He opposed foreign wars and so-called humanitarian interventions whose real goal was to attack other sovereign states either to control their resources, mainly oil, or line the pockets of the military-industrial complex. As a lifelong anti-racist activist, Corbyn criticised Israel and supported the rights of Palestinians, opening the door for the pro-Zionist political and media establishment to jump on him. He was immediately accused of anti-Semitism, leading an anti-Semitic party. Under enormous pressure, Labour adopted a new, highly controversial definition of anti-Semitism, one rejected by leading jurists and even repudiated by the lawyer who drafted it, that specifically links criticism of Israel and anti-Zionism with a hatred of Jews. One by one, Corbyn's remaining supporters in the party were picked off as anti-Semites. Last week, the BBC ran a panorama special on Corbyn, a hatchet job, claiming that he'd become institutionally anti-Semitic. A young woman who featured in the program was not named. She claimed to have been abused with anti-Semitic taunts at a Labour Party conference. 
but it turned out her name is Ella Rose, a senior official in the Jewish labour movement at the forefront of attacks on Corbyn, who had once worked for the Israeli embassy in London. She was exposed two years earlier for collaborating with an Israeli embassy official who had to be hurriedly removed from his post after an undercover Al Jazeera documentary showed him plotting with activists in the Labour and Conservative parties as part of Black Ops campaign to discredit any British politician seen as challenging Israel. Rose was shown threatening to use a physically violent martial arts technique developed by the Israeli army against another Jewish member who supports Corbyn. Panorama ignored Al Jazeera's revelations in its stitch-up. It highlights the bitter, very public feuds between the old guard dominated by Tony Blair and his acolytes and the rapid rise of the party's left wing under Corbyn which leaves two venal horrorheads as likely contenders to be Britain's next Prime Minister, a grubby contest between the buffoonish Boris Johnson and foolish Jeremy Hunt, who has publicly vowed to dramatically increase Britain's military spending by 25% that would wreak havoc on its public services, prolong years of severe economic austerity and bolster Trump's team of idiots driving the world to a catastrophic war making it abundantly clear that the UK does the bidding for Trump's warrior team, Bolton and Pompeo, just like we do here. UK grovelling sunk to a new low with the resignation of Ambassador to the US, Kim Darroch, at the instigation of Donald Trump. Darroch was thrown under a bus by Boris Johnson, who refused to support him, but what Darroch said was mild compared with what the rest of us are saying about Trump. But this pair of Tory toffs shouldn't be heading for Downing Street, with Johnson the front-runner, unfortunately, but should be frog-marched to to two padded cells. If there was a smidgen of common sense around, which we know there isn't, as a matter of urgency to de-escalate the current madness, Washington should reinstate its support for the 215 international treaty with Iran, immediately lift the sanctions, crushing the Iranian economy, and remove all warships from the Persian Gulf when they're doing the very opposite. Last week's seizure by British commandos of an Iranian oil tanker off Gibraltar and the refusal to release its cargo of two million barrels of oil would seem to be a calculated insult to provoke Iran. And then we've had the US boasting of downing an Iranian drone over the Strait of Hormuz, just miles off Iran's coast, but many thousands of miles from Washington, claiming it threatened a U.S. amphibious assault ship. Iran denies operating any drones in the area at that time, so it's very likely the U.S. shot down its own drone. But the U.S. will go on goading Tehran into an armed conflict. U.S. policy papers have admitted as much. Apart from Iran, Cuba is still on Washington's hit list. For almost 60 years, it has successfully defended its socialist revolution against a steady onslaught of U.S. aggression. Under Trump, the U.S. has upped the ante by disabling Cuban embassies, adding restrictions on U.S. travel to Cuba and limiting their spending, by restricting the amounts that Cuban Americans can send to family members, 
by actively recruiting a political opposition to overthrow the government and by implementing a part of the 1996 Helms-Burton law that had been on hold since 1966. And that allows former owners and heirs of properties nationalised by Cuba to initiate actions in US courts to gain compensation for what they lost. It constitutes an unprecedented attack on Cuban sovereignty with the intent of repossessing the island to annex it and move it towards total subordination to the United States. To top it off, the US has now blacklisted Cuba for allegedly using its overseas medical program for human trafficking. The annual report from the US State Department has added Cuba to the list of countries, quote, not doing enough to prevent the global scourge of human trafficking, with the threat of sanctions to follow. Cuba's international medical program, Operation Miracle, travels the world offering free medical treatment to impoverished and needy countries and is widely praised for its selfless dedication to their patients and their swift response to areas struck by disaster. To discredit this humanitarian program, is also by association discrediting the hundreds of surgeons who have worked tirelessly to care for the victims of Mozambique's cyclone, Puerto Rican's hurricane, Ecuador's earthquake and Chernobyl's young cancer victims. And then we have Julian Assange who is still languishing in London's Belmarsh prison. Writing about WikiLeaks from 2010 to 2017, psychologist, essayist and activist Nozomi Hayezi said, The future of civilization depends on great acts of courage inspired by the heart. WikiLeaks made history by publishing leaked documents that exposed the malfeasance of governments from around the world, most famously that of the US State Department, the Pentagon and the Democrat National Committee. As part of the movement to free Julian Assange, Nozomi states its basic creed that democracy dies in darkness, that those who do evil, who rob, bomb and devastate entire populations, conspire behind doors in corporate wardrooms, government offices, lavish estates and extravagant global gatherings like the Bilderberg Conference and the World Trade Organizations, whose plans are hidden in corporate and classified documents as are the consequences, but WikiLeaks made it possible for whistleblowers to expose them anonymously. The organisation has never been compelled to retract a publication and it has never exposed a source. Cryptocurrency has secured the donations that keep WikiLeaks alive, even after PayPal and all the banks and credit card companies rejected them. Because of its ingenious distributed technology, no army or intelligence agency has been able to destroy its searchable archives of well over 10 million leaked documents, including video and audio recordings. Sites using WikiLeaks technology and sharing its goals have proliferated. Political and economic events are telling us that justice is losing and greed is winning. Is it too late for change? We hope not. WikiLeaks released material pushing everything forward, but we need to do a great deal more. Firstly, those willing to do the research and journalistic work need to do the heavy lifting of material to tell the stories. Then lawyers and those driven by a belief of justice need to dig into the evidence of crimes and create a case. 
All the while, artists around the world must sing and speak freely to enliven the cultural sphere, cultivating compassion that makes it possible for us to share the suffering of the world. Together, all of this can bring justice into the court of public opinion. It's a beautiful vision that raises the question, can we recruit enough people? Do we have enough journalists willing to stick their necks out to do the research and heavy lifting in order to tell the stories? If so, do they have the outlets with a wide enough audience? Do we have the lawyers willing to dig into the evidence of crimes and create a case? It requires dedication and determination, qualities in short supply in this country and many others. The British Foreign Office has just banned two Russian outlets, Russia Today and Sputnik, from attending the upcoming Global Conference on Media Freedom to be held in London citing their predilection for disinformation. You would reckon it takes a special brand of hypocrisy and sheer gall for a government that tortures journalists, bans inconvenient voices and slanders alternative media to advocate for freedom of the press. The BBC's report on the story contains a brazen propaganda video which purportedly explains why it's very important for the BBC's audience to understand that Russia today is the propaganda machine paid for by the Kremlin, when the BBC itself is a government-funded news station with an established history of collaboration with British intelligence to stifle dissenting voices. British journalist Jonathan Cook recently described the BBC as a, quote, narrow, manufactured consensus of supposedly rational policy, neoliberal orthodoxy at home and neoconservative warmongering abroad, end of quote. Like all other mainstream British media and here in Australia, the BBC limits arguments for debate into arguing over how existing power structures should be helped and maintained instead of whether they should exist at all but it will be in attendance at the Global Conference on Media Freedom where it will be welcomed with open arms by Boris Johnson. So here we are in mid-2019 facing immense challenges from the onslaught of climate change or climate catastrophe to the spread of far-right movements around the globe to the increased proliferation of nuclear weapons threats to the natural environment and democratic institutions with a sense of crisis. The task ahead is enormous and we're fast running out of time. The challenge will be big enough if nations were committed to overcoming it. Some are. But it's impossible to overlook the fact that the most powerful state in human history is under the leadership of what can only be described as a gang of arch-criminals who are dedicated to destroying our world. It is hard even to find adequate words to capture the scale of their crimes, and Australia supports them. Humanity has been asleep at the wheel, or more accurately, it's been in an induced coma for far too long. So it's time to wake up, to fight back in every way we can by words and actions. One of our main aims must be to fight for an independent, socialist Australia. Good afternoon and good luck. And many thanks to author and activist Joan Coxedge. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 
855, I told you, Helen. 855, and what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. It's taken a long time, but for Monsanto, now Bayer, the chickens are coming home to roost. With court cases in the US and the first in the pipeline here in Victoria. The reason? Glycosate, dash, roundup, herbicides and cancers. Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network has been campaigning against Roundup for decades. So I asked him how it came to be that Monsanto and their Roundup became a major focus for the Gene Ethics Network. Well, most of the genetically engineered crops in the world, in fact over 90% of them, tolerate being sprayed with the glyphosate chemical, uh, which is the main ingredient of Roundup. There are over 500 such chemicals registered with the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority in Australia. The link was made. The genetically engineered crops, soybean, corn, canola, cotton, and now sugar beet in the USA, are an invitation to the spraying of more of this chemical. And it was a strategy that Monsanto adopted so that when its patent on its genetically manipulated seeds ran out, then they would still have a product to sell. Of course, the patent on Roundup also ran out in the early 2000s, and as a result, that was another hit to their profits unless they could contrive some way for continuing to sell both seeds and chemicals. And, of course, the seed chemical package of um, those crop seeds, which would tolerate being sprayed with a chemical that would otherwise destroy them, meant that farmers could overspray their crops with Roundup. It wouldn't kill the crop, but it would kill all other plants in the field. And uh, it was seen by many farmers, um, particularly in North America, who overwhelmingly adopted the GM varieties of these crops, that it would be kind of an easy way to manage weeds. Of course, they weren't fully informed that if they continued to use this strategy for more than a very few years, perhaps as, as few as five years, they would very soon end up with unmanageable weeds as a result of those weeds also acquiring the resistance to the Roundup that the crop plants had, not through genetic engineering, but through natural selection, because, of course, the weeds would adapt to being sprayed repeatedly with something that would otherwise kill them. Glyphosate's been very, very widely used for about um, since the early 1970s and is the most used weed management chemical in the world, regardless of whether you've got genetically manipulated crops or not. And again, it's been misused. In Australia, we have Roundup-tolerant weeds all over the place, principally as a result of the misuse or the repeated misuse of Roundup for managing weeds. From the land manager's point of view, whether you're a farmer, a council, or another a land care or some other institution, managing so-called weeds in our environment, plants that would interfere with what you wanted to do, then you would just spray them with Roundup. And as a result, many, many plants have, as a result of that misuse, also become tolerant of Roundup. There isn't really another, another weed management uh, chemical that has... Uh, been as, um, from weed managers' point of view, as brilliant as Roundup. And now that it's started to run out of steam and it's been found
found out to be a human carcinogen, they are wondering what the heck to do next. You're saying that it's the active ingredient in 500 weed killers. Why then only has there been a focus on Roundup? Oh, well, Roundup is, has been the uh, main commercial name for the product. And it's the one, of course, that home gardeners buy in Bunnings or in their local supermarket. And so it's the one that's high profile. But for other uses, there are a variety of chemicals that are used on farms and in larger weed management situations that go under other brand names. So it's um, different formulations. Roundup is a formulation. It contains not only glyphosate, the active ingredient, which can range in proportion in the mixture, somewhere between 1 and 40%, depending on what you're going to use it for, how strong you want it to be. So in the supermarkets, it'll be sold at 1% for home gardeners and people who want to um, you know, use it for local in the little spray bottle and then it will be up to 40% for those professional land care managers who want to spray it on farms or in um, natural ecosystems to control invasive weeds. It's got a whole raft of other things, surfactants, particularly to spread the chemical, the active ingredient, glyphosate, over the leaves of the target plants so that you get a good penetration and a good weed kill. Some of those chemicals are also very toxic as well, not, in our view, properly assessed or regulated either. It's a toxic mix. It's toxic brew. Its main commercial face is Roundup, but yes, there are over 500 uh, registered different formulations of the weed killer in Australia. That reflects, I think, its popularity and the eagerness with which uh, all sorts of companies want to use that active ingredient as part of a product that they can sell very profitably. Is there any safe level? That's now a big question, of course, for the courts to decide. Three juries in the USA have awarded very large payouts to three plaintiffs. Two of those were for couples who had regularly used Roundup in the USA. The first one was for about $80 million. The second, the, the Hardeman couple, was, um, was around about the same award, $80 million. And uh, the third one was for $2 billion. So that was um, pretty startling and, of course, is now on appeal. But we've just got the results of the first of the, appeal, or the first of the appeals in the Hardeman case, which was a married couple who had regularly used Roundup and both had, have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And the judge in that case has decided to slash the punitive damages, which were awarded to them, of just over $80 million, including the actual harm, which was about $5 million. The punitive damages, which were awarded in addition, $75 million have been put down to 20 I think that's the way that this will go. I think the payout will be around about $25 million for um, most of the cases, and there are now... 13,400 plaintiffs in the USA waiting to have their cases brought before courts or uh, mediated between the company, which is now Bayer, not Monsanto, because, of course, Bayer bought Monsanto last year. So there'll be a mediation going on to try to head off a big traffic jam in the courts in the USA. And I think if they're awarded, say, $25 million per plaintiff, that'd be $5 million actual damages and $20 million for punitive damages for how 
Monsanto misled the people who bought its products through advertising and other disinformation. If all of those cases are judged against Bayer, we're talking something order of $335 billion. Of course, not an amount that um, Bayer could possibly bear. So it's a, it's a big wake up, only for the company, but also for its insurers, for the and people who invested in Bayer, because it's uh, lost something of the order of 30% of its share value since it bought Monsanto last year. All of these cases are pending. And we now have one case also lodged in a Melbourne court over a case of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma being suffered by a gardener here in Melbourne. When it says punitive damage, you just explained that that is, that's that, that is because they didn't tell the whole truth. Is that what you're saying? Yes, the award of the punitive damages is against the company for having misled these people suffering now cancers as a result of being misinformed about the toxicity of, um, of glyphosate and the other, active in, uh, the other ingredients in Roundup. Because, um, of course, Monsanto started out many years ago, almost 50 years ago now, saying, oh, Roundup is so safe that you can drink it. And people swallowed that line. They haven't been properly warned by uh, anything on the label that regulators require. And as a result, people have used it incautiously, have um, overexposed themselves. And now, as I've said, in the USA at least, there are in excess of 13,000 people suffering non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and claiming uh, damages against the company. If we have a similar number of people exposed in Australia on the basis of our smaller population, of course, you'd have to expect that there will be some hundreds of claims if people are willing to come forward. Of course, we're in a different legal system, less litigious than the USA, and maybe people won't make the connection between their exposure to Roundup and their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But there are law firms in Australia who are looking for clients to take class actions in this case, and um, we'll have to just wait and see how that plays out. How long have the alarm bells been ringing here in Australia by people who really know what the situation is? Well, the volume on um, concerns about glyphosate, which are decades old, really started to ramp up when the um, UN body, the Expert Committee on Cancers, IACR, in 2015, March of 2015, changed the categorisation of glyphosate from possible human carcinogen to probable human carcinogen on the basis of a very big body of uh, peer-reviewed and published research. And one of the people on that um, uh, UN committee is a professor of epidemiology at Curtin University in WA, Lynn Fritzsche. She's been pretty low profile on this, of course, has come out once or twice defending the decision of the committee, which was a very measured decision and, of course, was very roundly criticised uh, in all sorts of ways by Monsanto defending its product. But um, in a recent online article, Professor Fritchie is quoted as saying, what worries me is that people who are using glyphosate are often not aware of the safety instructions as the APVMA regulations do not specify that safety information has to be on the bottle. So the APVMA are our regulator here in Australia. In a mild sort of way, she's as critical as we are that um, 
the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, while it's got a warning on the front, a pretty mild sort of warning, has no instructions at all about um, safe handling. In fact, the instructions on the bottle appear to me more concerned about the possibility that um, somebody who's bought Roundup might inadvertently spray something, some other plant in their garden that they value. So protecting plants appears to take precedence in the use of Roundup products here over um, protecting particularly very vulnerable children and animals. It says, for instance, that uh, once the chemicals dry, you can re-enter the area where, where it's been used. Whereas obviously in a garden situation or in a playground, in a park, that chemical can hang around for quite a long time on park benches or um, any hard surface. We know that paws and little fingers uh, can pick up those chemicals and put them in their mouth. So I think there is a genuine public health and safety concern here that is not flagged by the label. Generally, when local councils use the chemical, the area that they're treating is not signposted in any way. Occasionally, you'll see a sign saying near blackberries, for instance, though, where people obviously uh, would be out scouting blackberries, saying that Roundup has been sprayed and warning you not to pick the uh, fruit. But apart from that, the signposting and labelling are really pretty pathetic. And among council workers, you see that they're generally not appropriately protected, not dressed appropriately, no respiratory gear or anything, and will be spraying around our streets and footpaths quite liberally. Indeed, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a bit of a blow-up in Blacktown City Council in Sydney where um, 500 workers went out on strike for a day over a threat from council that uh, six staff who had been ordered to use Roundup refused to do so uh, and, and they were going to be moved to other jobs if they said we're not properly protected and we're not going to use this chemical. So it was a short-lived protest. However, the council has now moved on to doing a thorough review of its use of Roundup. Uh, we've provided them with documentation. We sent that to all the councillors individually. That is now going on in councils across Australia. We've got 547 councils in Australia and that I know of at least probably 50 of them are now currently reviewing their use of both Roundup and other toxic chemicals, particularly in weed, weed management. We're recommending that they look at some of the alternatives like weed steaming, the use of some other much more benign uh, natural chemicals which are derived from pine trees, possibly even uh, as uh, some, both councils and interestingly the freeway management here in Victoria are using goats for weed management on situations where they've got weed problems but can't reach them with machinery and they're difficult to get at uh, by personnel spraying. There are other clean options available and we're encouraging all councils to consider them. Assume that there's been pressure on these government bodies over the years by the chemical companies to dumb down the, the labelling of these products. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and the leader in this, of course, is CropLife. Uh, CropLife is the um, peak body of the agrochemical industry. It represents all of the main chemical companies, both um, local and overseas, uh, Bayer, BASF, Monsanto, of course, until recently, 
Al DuPont, and so on and so on. Uh, they're all represented by this group CropLife, which is in 91 countries and has its head office in the USA. And it's basically a global chemical industry disinformation unit. CropLife is based in Canberra. It's got good access to, to the politicians. The CEO is a previous ALP official, and they've also put quite a bit of money over the last several years into the coffers of both the National Party and the ALP uh, to get the kinds of decision that the industry wants on um, the sale and use of chemicals and particularly labelling so that uh, any concerns at all, uh, crop life is in there very quickly hosing down their concerns. For instance, uh, in 2014, a new system of reviewing uh, agricultural chemicals every 15 years and there are both between the agricultural chemicals and veterinary chemicals which are all regulated by the APVMA there are over 11,000 uh, different chemicals registered that review process would have begun on the 1st of July 2014 but uh, when he became the uh, agriculture minister under the Abbott government uh, Barnaby Joyce got the ALP back on side because Julia Gillard's government had set up a new system, this 15-year rotating review, as soon as he was um, in office, cancelled it. So it was due to begin on the 1st of July 2014, was cancelled, and we're still now uh, trying to get that reinstated, but with no real success because of the current government and the position of the opposition as well, that um, agrochemicals are adequately assessed and labelled because that's the main role that the APVMA plays is in labelling. Uh, it's up to the states individually then to once the product has been sold to regulate uh, its use and its impacts on the environment and states are really not uh, set up to do that. You've talked about the impact of these chemicals on the weeds and the plants that they don't want. You've talked about the impact on people. What about the food that's being produced from these chemicals? Well, there is an annual um, diet survey of the Australian um, food supply and the 25th diet survey results have just come out. Uh, they sampled 88 foods for a wide range of different herbicides and pesticides. They found, as they always do say, generally low levels of contamination with a large proportion of the food supplies containing no detectable residues. However, glyphosate was among those um, low levels of detection and um, I think it should be of concern that um, glyphosate residues now turn up in um, tests that have been done overseas as well, in uh, people's hair, in their urine, and so on. So it's quite ubiquitous both in the environment and in the food supply, albeit at lowish levels. But of course those levels are set by the people who regulate the chemicals and set the amount that can be used in a farming situation. So I think there are questions to raise and um, we saw in the recent publicity as well that a public health academic, Bruce Armstrong at the University of Sydney, uh, was saying that the uh, regulator should stop saying there's no evidence that Roundup causes cancer 
and as he said, get real and examine it so the public has confidence in the regulator. At the moment, I think there's every reason to have uh, serious doubts about the regulatory system. People should start just questioning how and why uh, chemicals are so liberally sprayed, particularly on food crops. We see, for instance, that uh, a fair number of grain crops are desiccated using Roundup just prior to harvest. This is to make the harvesting process, to facilitate the harvesting process by getting rid of green matter off the plants before you bring the uh, harvesters in to, um, to take the grain. And of course that does leave residues in the grain and in the food supply. Um, in a large number of things that we take for granted as being chemical-free infant formulas, for instance, and baby cereal, multi-grain breads, wholemeal, spelt, rye, even white breads, and then, of course, a lot of other uh, grain-based things like biscuits and crackers, rice-based um, breakfast cereals, which um, kids are pretty keen on, and uh, flour, both for home use and for... Um, and for baking commercially. So the desiccation of crops is not a trivial issue, and we saw recently that um, the people who brew beer are now demanding that um, barley for, for brewing is um, Roundup-free, and so they've stopped, in Western Australia in particular, the desiccation of, of barley for, for the brewing industry. So we've got a situation where our kids and, and others are exposed in the food supply, but um, people who drink beer can be now fairly assured that they're not going to end up at least with Roundup residues in their um, in their drinks. So uh, I think that's the way that industry will have to go. The insurance industry is getting very restive about um, the exposure of industry and itself uh, to the risks that uh, Roundup and glyphosate pose to the public health. And indeed, some of them are saying that... Um, it's perhaps even the number one risk exposure for industry at the moment, um, along with some other commercial products like um, baby powder, for example, which has had a finger pointed at it for being uh, contaminated with asbestos uh, in other countries. So um, I think a good measure of uh, where public concern should lie is often where um, the insurance industry sees threat and sees a threat particularly to its um, profit profitability as a result of very big claims coming forward from one, of, one or other of the products that we simply have in the marketplace and take for granted as being safe. And among those now is our food supply and Roundup residues. There's a figure that more than 6 billion kilograms of glyphosate has been sprayed over the last decade. Are alarm bells also being rung in other countries around the world apart from here in the US? Yes, well, um, if it comes to pass, um, the Austrian government may be the first to actually outlaw Roundup altogether. Several European member states have already partially banned glyphosate. For instance, the French have now prohibited being sold in uh, garden centres and in hardwares and so on to retail customers. So that's a partial ban. But in Austria, the lower house of the parliament has just recently voted to ban it completely. 
and it's now got to be confirmed in the upper house but we expect that that will go through so if others follow suit in Europe and there are 26 countries in the European Union then we could see quite a number of countries um, either banning completely or controlling the use of glyphosate in the near future and in other countries around the world similar caution is being exercised particularly in Argentina and Brazil rural communities there have been in their villages exposed through aerial spraying of genetically manipulated crops and uh, as a result a number of other immediate health impacts are pretty evident both systemic organic corruption some birth defects and a variety of other things that um, some researchers are saying are due to these communities being exposed to Roundup to glyphosate from aerial spraying. So I think the honeymoon for Roundup is over. We need to thoroughly examine the evidence. We need to take the, the corporate PR with a grain of salt because they have been manufacturing the evidence for a long, long time. And we need to be demanding also that our regulators review the real evidence. They base their judgments, yes, on some peer-reviewed and published evidence, but they also are privy to what the companies have told them is the evidence for safety. And on that basis, they've made a decision. We're not going to officially review uh, Roundup. Uh, we think it's safe, provided you follow the label, the Mickey Mouse label. And... Um, it's going to be business as usual as far as our regulators are concerned. So we've got to keep the pressure on them. We need to keep telling them, not good enough, guys. We want this stuff really reviewed. We want the other toxic chemicals, and there are thousands of them, coming into our food production systems and into our environments. It's having health and environmental impacts, and we've got to do something about it urgently. And I think there's now a groundswell, uh, particularly through local government, uh, for that to be done. It's something that Gene Ethics will be working on now as part of our campaigning over the next um, year. All right. Well, thank you once again, Bob. A pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, have a good month, and we'll talk to you then. And that is Bob Munts from the Gene Ethics Network, and that vision of the the goats tromping their way through the the weeds up on the sides of freeways is pretty special. It's 21 minutes past 5 o'clock. In recent weeks on Tuesday Home Time, there's been a focus on the campaign to ban nuclear weapons. Today, Dr Helen Caldicott, an Australian physician, author and anti-nuclear activist who has founded several associations dedicated to opposing the use of nuclear power, depleted uranium munitions, nuclear weapons nuclear weapons proliferation and military action in general. She was speaking on the Radio National program Occam's Razor and details the impacts of the development of these weapons in Russia, the US and Britain over many years and the impact until today with what she terms the nuclear Armageddon iceberg. The book Fallout by Fred Pierce is a fascinating insight into a few of the disastrous episodes which took place during the hasty and ill-informed projects of the nuclear age. To his credit, Pierce travelled to and recorded details of some of the most radioactive polluted landscapes in the world. The Russian Saga 
In Semipalatinsk in Kazakhstan, the Soviet Union conducted 619 nuclear explosions, 122 of which were atmospheric. The most dangerous was in 1949 when a bomb exploded just 120 feet above the Earth, thereby lofting huge amounts of radioactive soil into the atmosphere. People downwind were bombarded with fallout, many developing acute radiation sickness with vomiting, diarrhoea and fatal bleeding. Hundreds of thousands continued to be affected as they ate food on radioactively contaminated land, while increased incidences of leukaemia, deformed fetuses and other diseases have been reported. However, very few scientific epidemiological studies have ever been conducted on this damaged population. The next site was Plutonium Mountain, or Degelin Mountain, within the Soviet testing zone, where 181 tunnels were dug between 1961 and 89 in order to test the effects of conventional explosives on plutonium. Plutonium is a fuel for nuclear weapons. 2.5 kilos is critical mass. It is also one of the most dangerous toxins, and its radioactive life is a quarter of a million years. The Russians, with gay abandon, exploded or distributed hundreds of kilos composed of chunks or particles of plutonium within these tunnels. In 91, after the Soviet collapse, the locals were digging up contaminated machines and metal scraps, not knowing the acute toxicity of plutonium. Siegfried Hecker, former director of Los Alamos National Weapons Labs, estimated there were 200 kilos of plutonium in these tunnels, enough to make many primitive atomic bombs and hugely carcinogenic to exposed individuals. Incidentally, the British conducted similar plutonium experiments in Maralinga, South Australia, releasing 22.6 kilos over the desert sands, including jets of molten plutonium. A superficial clean-up buried some of the contaminated soil in pits. Back to Russia. In 1946, 1,000 miles from Semipalatinsk in Mayak, a plutonium production plant was hastily conducted to build the Soviet bombs. It experienced seven criticality accidents and slipshod work contaminated hundreds of workers and large areas of countryside. Hundreds of workers developed lung, liver and bone cancer and leukaemia, while female workers suffered the most. In 1957, a massive explosion in one of the waste tanks spread radiation over hundreds of miles. Twenty villages were evacuated and the evacuees were never told why. But the Mayak plant also poured one Olympic swimming pool of lethal radioactive wastes every two hours into the adjacent Tika River, seriously contaminating hundreds of miles of marshes, fish and food, thereby exposing thousands of people to huge doses of radiation from strontium-90, cesium-137 and other isotopes. But that's not all. The most radioactive waste from Mayak were discharged into a small lake, Karache, near the plant. This lake subsequently dried up, and in 1957, strong winds catastrophically spread one million curies of extremely radioactive dust over the land. Now to America. Its haste to construct a total of 70 to 77,000 nuclear weapons a shoddily built plant was constructed at Rocky Flats, Colorado, where mostly women machined plutonium pits 
in leaky glove boxes from plutonium made in reactors at Hanford, Washington. Plutonium is spontaneously flammable, and in 1957 a plutonium fire and explosion erupted, burning over 20.5 kilos of deadly plutonium, and to this day it's unknown how much escaped to the air. It contaminated surrounding areas, populations, and possibly Denver, thus emulating the Bayak fire. On Mother's Day in 1969, a similar fire recurred. Plutonium waste was also sprayed over adjacent land. Employees incinerated it at night. Plutonium was dumped in landfills. And 5,000 highly dangerous liquid waste drums were stacked outside on pad 903. The incidence of cancer in adjacent suburbs substantially increased over time although official epidemiological studies have not been conducted. Some people now want to convert this large, now empty, highly contaminated area into a wildlife refuge open to the public. Again in 57, another dreadful fire occurred in the plutonium-producing wind-scale nuclear reactor in Britain, which showered the Irish Sea and the Lake District with cesium 137 strontium-89 and 90, and polonium-210 even more deadly than plutonium. The Irish Sea is the most radioactive sea in the world. So three major accidents took place in 57 in Russia, America and Britain, all side effects in their mutual haste to become nuclear nations. Little data has been collected to estimate the number of fertilities, malignancies and associated diseases that would have occurred in these doomed guinea pig populations. As Pierce said, these tragedies were caused by an unseemly rush to manufacture as many bombs as possible at almost any cost, human and otherwise. But accidents called broken arrows happened with the actual bombs themselves. Pierce only describes two, but there were more including one in Goldsboro, North Carolina in 1961 when a B-52 crash containing two 3-4 to four megaton bombs, each 250 times larger than the Hiroshima bomb. And in one bomb, five of the six safety catches failed to work. In 1956, a B-52 plane armed with four hydrogen bombs crashed in Spain and two of the conventional explosives detonated, contaminating large areas with deadly plutonium. In another accident in 68, a B-52 crashed in Greenland, spreading plutonium over ice and ocean. Luckily, none of these massive hydrogen bombs exploded, but the clean-up lasted years. Pierce goes on to describe 150 Minutemen missile solos in the U.S. Midwest, each missile armed with a hydrogen bomb of 300 kilotons, 24 times larger than the Hiroshima bomb. A similar situation pertains in Russia. However, these situations are just the tip of the nuclear Armageddon iceberg. We sit on a razor's edge as enmity builds apace between Russia and America, each with over 1,000 hydrogen bombs on hair-trigger alert, ready to be launched with a three-minute lead time, while Trump is accompanied 24 hours with a nuclear button. Our lives and life on Earth is in extreme peril when it only takes 1,000 bombs landing on 100 cities to create nuclear winter, and those who have not already perished will freeze to death in the dark. That's Australian doctor... Helen Caldicott and 
Thanks to Occam's Radar, Razor from the ABC for that broadcast. On the 4th of July, esteemed international law expert, Emeritus Professor Richard Falk, Professor of International Law at Princeton University and former UN Special Rapporteur on Palestinian Human Rights, delivered a presentation at the New South Wales Parliament Theatrette, titled Future for Palestine, BDS, International Law and Beyond. Here he is introduced by Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees from Sydney University. Thank you, Helmi, and welcome, everyone. My responsibility is to briefly introduce Professor Richard Falk. Richard is the Professor of International Law at uh, Princeton University, Professor of Global Order and International Relations at the University of California at Santa Barbara. He's the author of at least 20 books and uh, 20 co-authored reports, including that highly significant report about Israeli practices towards Palestinians the question of apartheid with uh, Virginia Tilly. His books have covered topics such as humane governance, shifts in power, the new global order, the nature of human rights, and of course the recent uh, Pluto Press book about uh, a just peace for Palestine towards new horizons. In all of that work, if you follow 40, 50 years or more, of Richard's work, and Hilmi's already hinted at that, he's been amazingly scrupulous, forensic in his attention to detail, always backed by evidence, always reaching for the highest academic standards. You will also know that he was appointed by Kofi Annan as the United Nations Special Rapporteur for the Occupied Territories between 2008 and 2014 a role in which he, with enormous courage, stuck with the principles of international law, not necessarily berating always the Israelis, but looking at those principles as the yardstick by which to judge what was fair and uh, and just. Nevertheless, he was never welcome. Uh, He was smeared. I wouldn't say criticised, because criticised presupposes Uh, uh, some capacity for reflection and fair judgment. And smearing and derision uh, does not uh, involve that. I mean, he's been detained, imprisoned, expelled from Israel, but uh, nevertheless had maintained the high standards that had characterized all his work. He really meets two criteria that merited our inviting and persuading and uh, being incredibly pleased that he's here this evening. The first criteria Helmi's already talked about. It's about the characteristic Australian welcome to anybody who sticks up for the rights of the Palestinians, namely the uh, article that appeared in the Australian Jewish News. It's almost a badge of honour, Richard, I'm sorry to say, that you, that you got that kind of derision as a form of journalism. I'm fed up with derision as a form of journalism. It doesn't befit a so-called civil society. It's intellectually lazy. It's not worth even one out of ten in a student's essay. And that brings me really to the last criterion by which to welcome Richard. It's a cliche that in in, uh, lecture theatres, students will say about professors, do they walk the walk or just talk the talk? 
while the whole of Richard Falk's career is about walking the walk. And on those grounds, please welcome him to this session. Good evening, everyone, and thank you, Stuart, for those gracious words. I'm delighted to be here, and I appreciate the obstacles overcome to get me here, which were not something unique in my experience, but they represent a telling indication of why it's important to speak to these issues at this time. It's not accidental that the recourse to smearing has become the characteristic modus operandi of the Zionist militant groups. And in a way, it's a tribute to all of you who are activists here, because those that are trying to use this kind of tactics have given up on substance. They want to wound the messenger rather than address the message. And that's a very big uh, development in a way, suggesting that civil society is where this struggle is now being waged. And it's a very important aspect of the distinctiveness of this long Palestinian ordeal that really stretches over the course of more than a century at this point. Let me uh, say just at the outset that today happens to be my favorite American holiday. <laughs> it's the Independence Day, and what it celebrates is the inalienable rights of people to be treated equally and with suitable dignity. And so there's a certain, I've never had the opportunity to celebrate the 4th of July other than by watching fireworks. So to have this kind of, I suppose, verbal fireworks is a great advance in terms of really embodying the best of what America started out to be and understanding its relevance to the struggle of the Palestinian people because really what is at stake is the denial of the inalienable rights of the Palestinian people. And as long as that denial occurs, there will be this cycle of repression and resistance. It's inevitable in the 21st century, a post-colonial period in human history, where people are not prepared to be passive in the face of an attempt to impose another kind of society on a native people or on a resident population. And I've said for some time that the original sin of Zionism is to impose a Jewish state on an essentially non-Jewish society. 
And from that original sin flows almost all of the repressive tactics and the what has culminated in what we believe on the basis of an academic study to be to qualify as the crime of apartheid. And, it, and apartheid is an international crime with an international convention supporting it. But what I mean by the inevitability both of apartheid and of the cycle of violence is that in this period of history, the nationalism of a people is something that cannot be subdued by violence and military force. All of the anti-colonial struggles were won by the weaker side militarily. And one should ponder that, why that is so, why that, why that became so, and wasn't true prior to the middle of the last century. And my own understanding is that there was this surge of national self-determination that was given legitimacy by the United Nations, by public, international public opinion. And the combination of that renewed confidence in the right and destiny of a people to control their own future created a capacity to reverse the balance of forces that had been associated with the way change occurs in history and the role of military power and military superiority, which underpinned the colonial era and accounted for the spread of European colonialism globally. So what I'm trying to express is that the end of the colonial era gave rise to what might be called the potency of soft power. And the potency of soft power is that this combination of nationalist self-assertion combined with global solidarity and added to by perseverance managed to overcome military inferiority and the weakness that would be associated with an understanding of history and change as reflecting relative power in that traditional realist sense of military capabilities. And it's a lesson that the major governments, and especially my own, refuse to learn. They refuse to accept the limitations of military power in the 21st century. They should have learned the lesson in Vietnam, where the U.S. had every kind of military superiority and yet lost the war. See, and that's the paradigm that I'm trying, the, the new historical paradigm that is the foundation of hope for the Palestinian struggle. It is that paradigm that would challenge what appears from the pre-World uh, War II outlook to be a lost cause. 
it's a lost cause from this older perspective. It's a lost cause in terms of the degree to which Israel has geopolitical support, has been able to neutralize the Arab governments that are its neighbors and to some extent has even covertly aligned with them, especially in confronting Iran, and seems to be in total control of the situation. But again, that points to the failure to grasp this new paradigm. And that failure to grasp it is partly an underestimation of the cause that unites most of the people here in this room. The BDS campaign is an expression of global solidarity. And global solidarity combined with the right of resistance is what shifts over time the balance of forces. And that's why perseverance is so important. Because these struggles against superior military power involve great suffering for the society that is victimized. Uh, the Vietnamese lost three to four million people in achieving their victory. So because the old paradigm is able to destroy and kill almost without limitation, but it can't control the political outcome. That's the dirty secret of militarism. It can kill people and destroy cities and destroy society, but unless it's prepared to go to genocidal extremes, it can't win politically. And that's the, impo the importance of, the, of this moment. We're at a, uh, I think in a, one of those critical junctures in the course of the, this long Palestinian ordeal. And it's a critical juncture for several reasons. The first of which is that Israel has recognized that the real battlefield now is the struggle for legitimacy. And the struggle for legitimacy, what I've called in the past a legitimacy war, has to do with the relative morality and legality of the two adversary positions that are at stake. And why Israel is taking such an effort to discredit peaceful attempts to achieve progressive change is because they, they understand that what is at stake is their legitimacy as a society in the world. And therefore, they, in order to wage that battle, they can't wage it substantively because of international law is too much on the side of the Palestinians. If you look at the evidence, I used to say, well, being a special rapporteur, that you only have to be 10% objective to come to the same conclusions that I came to. You don't need to be balanced. The reality is so clear. I mean, the unlawfulness of the settlements, the annexation of Jerusalem, the denial of the right of return to Palestinian refugees, 
all of these issues, if subjected to any kind of fair-minded assessment, would favor the Palestinian interpretation of the relevance of the legal norms. Therefore, Israelis can't argue the substantive case, and they realize that. And that's why there was no problem of this sort ten years ago. There were problems, of course, but not of this sort, not an attempt to discredit those that were critical of the state of Israel. And in that sense, it shows that the Palestinians are winning the legitimacy war. And they're winning the legitimacy war precisely, and one sign of their winning it is this desperate effort to invalidate the BDS campaign, a nonviolent form of criticism of the policies of a sovereign state. When the BDS idea was launched in relation to South African apartheid, there were many opponents of it, including at my uh, university. And there were people who said it doesn't work, it'll do more harm to the Africans than to the Afrikaners, or that it uh, is inconsistent with the strategic interests of the U.S. and the U.K. in the Cold War. All of these arguments were made, but there was never the attempt to discredit those that supported BDS. There was always the sense that this is the right of people in a free society, and that you may disagree with that, the exercise of that right or the arguments that underlie it, But the essential truth of the position is that this is a way that people of conscience in a free society can act for what they believe in. So it's really, it should be shocking that there's this attempt to use law in this distorted way to uh, delegitimize this nonviolent form of solidarity with the Palestinian people. And this nonviolent form is essential to the struggle in the, at the core of the legitimacy war. Because what it really is doing, and what it did in the connection with South Africa, was to lead the in the first case, in the instance of South Africa, it led the South African elite to quietly recalculate their interests and decide for their own sake. They didn't have a sudden moral awakening, uh, waking up one morning and saying, oh, this kind of racism is horrible. We have to, we have to honor all people equally. They didn't do that. What they did was to say, we're better off with a constitutional democracy than being isolated in the world and suffering from the kind of delegitimation that was associated with the reliance on apartheid that was criminalized by the UN and which led to a grassroots campaign all over the world that is analogous to what is happening in relation to the Palestinian struggle. So that what I think is important to recognize 
is that there have been many attempts, some sincere, mostly really contrived public relations kinds of efforts to solve the problems between the Palestinians and Israelis. And all of these past attempts were what I call politics from above. That is relying on governments or international institutions, not on people. And those attempts to solve the problem, uh, they started off with the partition effort after World War II. And the, the partition effort was one where suddenly a territory administered by the UK as a mandate, a unified territory, was to be divided between two peoples without ever consulting the wishes of the population living in the territory. The UN backed at that time a complete denial of the right of self-determination of the Palestinian people, of the Arab population that lived there. And you have to remember, and this is part of this original sin that I referred to, that when the Zionist movement was launched at the end of the 19th century, the, population, the Jewish population of Palestine was somewhat under 8%. It led early Zionists to say, you don't have to be crazy to be a Zionist, but it helps. It helps because the undertaking was so unrealistic as a political project. It could be a dream and it could be a fantasy, even a utopian uh, sort of undertaking. But to think that you could get political traction to displace a resident population that was 92% was crazy. And when the Balfour Declaration was issued, the population had increased from 8% approximately to 8.1%. Again, not a recipe for creating a Jewish state in Palestine. And it should be remembered that what the British agreed to, it was a pure colonial initiative, but what they agreed to was not a Jewish state but a Jewish homeland. They pledge support for a Jewish homeland. And my own sense is that if there is to be a kind of coexistence between these two people in a sustained peace, it would have to revert to some version of sharing the territory and having some kind of acknowledgement of dual homelands within the territory. But this is uh, irrelevant to what I'm uh, really trying to suggest. And what I'm trying to suggest is basically that these attempts such as partition and the Oslo diplomacy, which really was a instrument for Israeli expansionism really diminished the relative position which already was disadvantaged by the outcome of the 1948 war 
which uh, converted the part, the 55% that was given to Israel by the UN into 78%. And even, see, one of the things that people haven't understood about the Zionist project is that it always exceeds what it formally claimed. It was first supposedly satisfied with the pledge of a homeland. And then it was committed to getting the British out of Palestine so it could establish a state. And then it accepted the partition, but it really didn't want the partition. It wanted to have as much of the biblical entitlement that it saw Israel as the promised land in relation to this biblical entitlement, which had nothing to do with international law. I mean, many ethnicities have a kind of entitlement based on historical connection. What is true and distinguishes the situation in Palestine from other uh, settler colonial situations is that there there is that emotional connection of Jews to this territory and to Jerusalem and there has been a continuous Jewish population even though it's a small minority that has lived there. That isn't true of the other uh, settler colonial experiences and it makes, it creates a harder kind of sense of justification. It's a justification that is based on ideas that have no legal foundation except within the Israeli uh, framing of the question. You've been listening to Emeritus Professor Richard Falk speaking in Sydney on the 4th of July, BDS, International Law and the Future for Palestine. And on the program next week, I'll play the second part of his talk. That's all for me for today. It's coming up to six o'clock, time for Done By Law. I'll go out with a a couple of announcements and then it will be time for them to talk to you about the issues of law. Bye for now.